All right, we're going to start by reading uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and then I want to read one verse from 1 Timothy. It goes like this, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and he, Jesus, of course, entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by name, by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich, and he was trying to see who Jesus was. Let me just stop for a second. He was a chief tax gatherer. We know tax gatherers were despised, and this guy was like a lead tax gatherer, and being a tax collector at that time was basically a a ticket to print money uh, because they would cheat. The Roman government wanted tax gatherers to collect taxes from their countrymen. So this was a, a child of Abraham, someone of Jewish descent, gathering taxes from his family and neighbors for the Romans. And the Romans really didn't care as long as they got the prescribed cut. That tax gatherer could collect as much. He could rip people off as much as he wanted and keep the rest as long as the Romans got their chunk. And that's what they did. So just to remember, this guy, tax gatherers were hated and this guy was a chief tax gatherer, okay? So Jesus enters and was passing through Jericho and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax gatherer and he was rich because of what he was doing. And he was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. Oh man, shout out to the guys who, you know, need to climb a tree, okay? And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. Okay, he climbs up in a tree because he hears, he knows, okay, this is the route Jesus is taking. There's only a few ways he can go. He's climbing up in a tree. He wants to see him. He, you know, it says that he had heard about Jesus. He knew he was coming and he was trying to see him. He wanted to see this guy. Maybe because he wanted to see a miracle. Who wouldn't? Uh, Whatever else it might have been. We don't know. But he's there. He climbs up in a tree. For Jesus was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. Now, maybe he knew who the chief tax gatherer was and he knew who that was by some, you know, natural knowledge. Or maybe not. Either way, he's passing by and he just looks up at Zacchaeus. The guy just wants to see Jesus. Instead, Jesus speaks to him. Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. Okay, that's bold. And when he hurried and came down and received him gladly, I'm sorry, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, I don't know if that means they had already started to proceed toward his house. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, 
Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, if, for sure he had, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. That means he was of the people that Jesus, Messiah, came to speak to. He too is a son of Abraham. Here it is. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Today, salvation has come to this house. For he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek, to seek out, to search for, and to save that which was lost. Okay? Very quickly, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, this is Paul speaking. Uh, sorry, I wrote the wrong thing down. It must be second. Oh, 115, not 5. Yeah, I read it wrong. Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he came for. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all. I don't know how you felt when you got saved, but I think many, many of us, when we got saved, we felt like we were foremost among sinners. Anybody else sort of feel that way? Yeah, you felt like, I am the worst sinner I know. I can blame other people for other things, but I know that this guy really needed to be saved. I, I felt like the foremost, and Paul's saying it. I mean, he did things that, you know, maybe were over and above. I mean, he was, he even says in that passage, he was a blasphemer. He was antagonistic to the church. He carried believers away to jail. He did bad things. He was a bad dude. He says, I was foremost among sinners. Well, I feel like that too. But the good news is, that's who Jesus came to save. Somebody say amen. That's who he came to save. Jesus is holy, right? Jesus is holy. Of course, he, the Bible makes clear that Jesus is sinless. He never did sin. In all of his time here, it says he was, came in the likeness of sinful flesh and was in all points tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Never did sin. So he was qualified to do what he did, the work of Messiah. He's the only one in all of history who could do what he did to atone for our sins. And he did it. The only sinless one. I've just been reading Psalm 14, and it's this list. This, it sounds kind of discouraging, but it's, there is none righteous, not one. There is none who is going toward you, God. There's none who knows the truth. It's like, there's none, there's none, there's none. There's not one except for Jesus, the sinless Son of God, completely without sin, in word, thought, or action. He's holy. Yet, this holy one, the Son of God, is always with sinners. Now, of course, that's easy because every other person is a sinner, but he's with 
sort of the ones that, you know, check all the boxes, the chief tax gatherers. It's like he made it his mission. Yeah, he did. He's always with sinners. Over and over it says he's surrounded by sinners. He's at dinner with sinners. That's kind of catchy. He's, with, he's at dinner with sinners. Sinners were the ones coming to hear him speak. It says sinners came to hear him speak. What? This holy guy who's talking about a holy God and the kingdom of God, and sinners are the ones coming to hear him. The religious were kind of less interested. But the sinners, they were the ones that came to actually hear him speak. In the temple, in the synagogue, in the wilderness, in you know a fisherman's house, a Pharisee's house, a tax gatherer's house. In fact, back in Luke chapter 5, a little earlier in this book, Verse 27 is when Jesus calls Matthew, who's also a tax gatherer. And what happened? He calls Matthew and he says, follow me. So he leaves his tax booth and begins to follow Jesus. And what happens? That night he has a party and it says there were many tax gatherers there. Again and again, actually, particularly in Matthew and Luke, it says Jesus was with Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Well, everybody's a sinner, so when it says sinners, it must mean ones where it was very obvious that they're sinners. And tax collectors. He just seemed to be around those kind of people. They flocked to him. Maybe because they recognized their need, whereas some of the other ones, more religious, didn't recognize they had a need like these ones. Okay? So he's always surrounded by sinners. He's with them without compromising his holiness, without ever lowering the standard or compromising. In fact, I heard one uh, pastor say, guy I listen to a lot, he said, we do see that Jesus is called a friend of sinners. He's called that a couple of times, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he had dinner with them. However, sometimes he probably didn't get invited back. Because he probably brought the truth and not everybody had an open heart for it and probably some closed off and, oh, this guy makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, let me say this. Jesus spent his life, he literally spent his life on people and around people, sinful people. He literally spent himself for them. Okay, day after day, hour by hour, moment by moment, this crowd, this town, this party, this dinner, this synagogue, this family, so on, so on. Intentionally, he was around people and he was constantly interrupted by people. I'm convicted when I see how Jesus gets interrupted and he goes with it. Many, many of the miracles he did were interruptions. He was going somewhere, and somebody interrupted him. And now, if I was Messiah, uh, I know it's probably hard for you to imagine, but let's just say I was Messiah. Not another interruption. I was just going to get something done. I have to go to the synagogue and teach, and you want me to come and heal your, you know, your blind cousin or something it's like you know okay let's come on get him up you know no 
<laughs> Jesus, thank God. How many people do you think would be, okay, no, I'm not inviting Jesus again to come. And he, no, he, he went intentionally to be with people and he accepted the interruptions. And what happened? He would go with it and he'd heal people. It's amazing. He, had interu- he got interrupted when he was being interrupted. He was on his way to heal a little girl and that was an interruption. And while that happened, Another person came and wanted healing for, um, uh, she was anemic, and she needed healing. He, it's like he had interruptions in his interruptions, but he took care of it all. He did it, he, but with sinners, with people. And this holy one walks through this surrounded by insecure, prideful, gossiping, broken, uh, pained, greedy, idolatrous, malicious, every kind of sinner. He's surrounded by them constantly. People like the person next to you. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus' holiness shone forth in the midst of all of that darkness constantly. It's like it was even more evident because he was surrounded by sinners. It is not simply his lifestyle. It was emanating from him. It's his nature. It, he, he's, he's got holiness just sort of coming out, radiating from him. Amen? Yeah, John chapter 1 verse 5 says, you know, it, he was the light of the world. In him was light and the darkness could not overpower it. It's like that light shining in the darkness and people, sinners are recognizing it. It's like, we've got to get there. I was talking with Risha before the service about how Jesus was and some of the depictions of Jesus in our day. He's so spooky that in the Bible, you always see kids going to be near Jesus and women who... In that day, women were, were truly second-class citizens, but they would, they would go somewhere to get near Jesus. Well, this was a guy that somehow there was something about him that they could come near. Kids, don't you love that kids are emotionally honest? If, if you kind of creep them out or they don't like something about you, they don't come near you. They don't, they're not like adults where they sort of pretend. Kids are just like, eh. You know, they run. And Jesus had kids coming to him. He had women coming to him. This guy was, his light was attracting sinners to him. Could not. Now we're all going to be analyzing. Next time a kid rejects us, it's like, I must be creepy. Okay. (laughs) We'll pray for that after the service. Okay. The thought of Christ's holiness can make us uncomfortable. But there's also something in him, his holiness radiated out. And different as it must have been to be around somebody who absolutely, who was absolutely flawless, absolutely sinless, people, because of how he was, who he was, what he said, they couldn't stay away from him. Sinners, sinners got there. And it makes us uncomfortable sometimes when we think of the holiness of God. Let me ask you, how do you feel when you hear the word 
holy. When you hear a scripture that says something like, without holiness, none of us will see God. There's a bit of conviction when you hear that, without holiness, because why? We know we're not yet, right? We know we're in process, but we know Jesus is okay. But for us, mm, it makes us uncomfortable. But here's part of what I'd like us to see tonight, highlighted in this account of Zacchaeus and Jesus. Jesus is beautiful in his holiness. He's coming through the the city. Zacchaeus just, it says he wants to see who he is. It doesn't actually say for sure that he wanted contact. He goes up in a tree. I want to get a look at the miracle worker. I want to be near him. And he's up in the tree. He wants to see him. But instead, Jesus just calls him down. Hurry down. I have to spend the day at your house. Well, I don't know about you, but somebody really holy, they want to come to my house. It's like, oh gosh, Rose, what's our house like? Is it a mess today? Are they going to see how far short we fall? I mean, you know, he's going to be right in our midst like, oh no, that could be a little bit scary. But instead, here's Jesus, beautiful in his holiness. The word holy appears hundreds of times in the Bible about days that are holy, things like uh, material things that are holy, um, procedures that were holy in the temple. And of course, it's primarily used about God. And it's clear that holiness isn't to be taken lightly. There's reverence and respect are appropriate responses with what's holy amen reverence and respect we respect someone who's um got stature and none of us have ever been around anybody else like jesus holy and sinless respect and reverence are appropriate with him uh rose and i a few years ago uh for one of her birthdays we went for a couple days to victoria and we went into these um churches there and i don't know what kind of services they have in there now i don't even actually remember what denomination they were but the building that i'm thinking of is this thing they called it neo-gothic architecture and it really is magnificent you walk in and there's something about even the way it's built and the high ceiling and the stone and the pillars and everything about it that it's transcendent. There's something that sort of directs your, you know, your attention upward, like, wow, this is a room that's for something distinct, something different than everything else. You know, we, had, we met for six years, I think it was, in um, maybe five years in the gymnasium for our services. And thank God for that space. But there's something very common about it compared to something like that where there's something, there's a reverence sort of is natural in a place that's kind of built like that. It, it calls your attention higher and there's something about it. And when we get around someone who's like that, someone who's holy, someone who's got that kind of stature, it attracts our attention higher. It must. And Jesus, in Jesus, we see something even more. We see the beauty of holiness, the attractiveness of it. We see in Jesus that holiness is 
desirable and delightful in this world. I mean, there's so much that's common and there's so much sort of celebrating things that are that are sinful, you know, and we make light of it and that kind of thing. But when it comes down to it, with God, sin is not a joke. Holiness is not a joke. It's his state, and it's desirable, and it's delightful, and it's beautiful, and it's awe-inspiring, and it, it stirs in us a reverence like nothing else will. It's also, the holiness of Jesus is also welcoming. Now that seems almost like, for me, that's a a bit of a mind-renewing thought. That holiness is welcoming. But here's Jesus. Sees a chief sinner who's gotten rich off of taxing his countrymen. And in a way, in a sense... It's like he's flipping them off, his countrymen. It's like, I don't care. Money means more to me than my countrymen, than my family. There was some, he was ostracized by most people, tax collectors. It's like, uh, they, you know, that's why he, that was used as kind of a byword. Oh, he's a tax collector, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But here's Jesus. He welcomes the sinner down. Get down from the tree. I want to spend the day in your house you chief tax collector who's rich. And in so doing, he drew this tax collector, this chief tax collector, toward rightness, righteousness, goodness, honesty, humility. This guy humbled himself before Jesus. I'll bet you he wasn't very humble before. He was a rich chief tax collector. I bet you he was pretty prideful. He draws him toward repentance, which is what happens. Jesus doesn't even have to preach at him that we see here. It says he stopped and says, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I'll give to the poor. Just from being around Jesus, the holy Messiah, the holy one. I'll give half of it. This draws him to repentance and transformation and holiness. How did it look? Zacchaeus was free. It's like he's going to have a party tonight at his house, but it's different than what he would have had on other nights because now he invites all of his tax gatherer friends and they're around this Messiah who not only is holy and set apart in terms of never sinning, but he's different in that he's welcoming sinners to him. Why? So they can continue in their sin? No, so they can be set free, so that they can be free to live the way that he knows real life ought to be. He never intended for you or me or any person we ever see to be burdened with a weight of sin on their shoulders. That yoke was never intended. I mean, they talk about stress, killing people nowadays and all of the things, ulcers and every kind of uh, bad health issue that has to do with stress. We were never meant to carry that. We were to walk independence on him free from sin if you had no sin man there'd be a weight off of your your shoulder it's just the way that god intended for us to be what we are seeing as normal in the world we live in is not normal that's not how we were made somebody say amen
He wants us to be free, like Zacchaeus, free, free of his greed, free of some degree of being socially rejected. I'll bet you word got around. Word had already gotten around. It says when they saw Jesus call Zacchaeus down, they were grumbling. How in the world? And they did it to Jesus other times. A few weeks ago, we talked about that woman coming with a bad reputation, washing Jesus' feet while he was eating dinner. And they, that, the Pharisees thinking, if he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that is. She's unclean. She's got a bad reputation, meaning she's immoral. He would know. But what, what, here's Jesus. What does his holiness do? It brings her in and saves her. What does it do with Zacchaeus? Brings him in and saves him and frees him. That's what a holy Savior has come to do. Not to just reject us. We had a lot of that. This sinner was sought out by Jesus and saved. I think Jesus knew he was going to see him that day. He says, this day I have to spend a day in your house. He sought him out, praise God. Jesus didn't stand apart from sinners relationally. He stood apart from them in that he didn't partake of their sin. But he didn't stand apart relationally. He drew near. He drew near and welcomed a leading sinner into relationship with him. Holiness in Jesus is more substantial than our sinfulness. He wasn't fearful that, oh, if I get near sinners, their sin's going to get on me. No, his holiness is going to get on them and change them. His, he laid hands on a leper, and instead of, I mean, you in that day, you didn't put your hand on a leper. They had to stay apart. But here's Jesus his substance is wholeness and health. You know, wholeness comes from the same word as holiness. It, that's what it means, complete. He's holy and complete. His wholeness got on the leper rather than the leper's disease getting on him. I like that. That should be us too. I don't mean do foolish things, but God in us is greater than all of what's in the world, and he wants to take what he's put in us and put it on other people, life to people. Life is more powerful than death. Death is just the absence of life. Life is the, is the force. It's the positive force. Death is just the absence of life. So when God puts his life in us, there's something in us to be given out. It's more substantial than death. Jesus' holiness is more substantial than people's sin, than your sin, Believe it tonight. God's holiness is, is here to change your life and give you victory over sin. Well, now there's something we can take home. God, his holiness is more substantial than my sin and your sin. Tell somebody next to you, say, Jesus' holiness is greater than your sin. I heard somebody go, hmm, maybe. <laughs> no, I didn't. Salvation is the result. God comes into contact. This holy Messiah comes into contact with sin-polluted people, people bound by selfishness and lust and greed and pride and all of that, and salvation is the result when there's faith. Now, holiness is a little intimidating, and fear evoking because of it, perfection. It's perfection and it's uncompromising nature. 
Jesus doesn't compromise, and he's pure. There's something kind of terrifying about that perfect purity. No sin whatsoever. There's something kind of fear-evoking about that. But the Holy One, the one who is holy, is not at all impersonal or cold or indifferent toward the creatures he made in his likeness. He's not cold toward them. He comes in holiness to welcome sinners to himself. In fact, the end of this passage, that verse, for the Son of Man has come. That's, this is the purpose that he came for, to seek and to save that which was lost. And then Paul adds that. He changes the very end of it. He says, he came to seek and save sinners. That's who's lost, the sinners. Jesus came to do that. He welcomes. His holiness even invites us. He even seeks us out. He seeks out sinners. He's looking for them, like you and me, in order to free us, to save us, to transform us. He is holy and wonderful and beautiful in his holiness. And he's not balancing, okay, his love and his holiness. Oh, in his holiness, he really wants to, you know, strike. But his love balances it out. No, he's both things. That's his nature. God is love, and God is holy. Even the creatures that fly around, you turn to the book of Revelation, turn to the book of Ezekiel, you see the same thing. Even the great angels that are flying around the throne of God, they're crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And it says every time they say that, the elders around the throne in heaven, they fall on their faces and cast crowns before him. They get low. They humble themselves before the holy, perfect God. But wait, doesn't holiness demand something of us? Yes, of course. Is there something disconcerting or disquieting about interaction with a holy God? Of course, there is. He's not just our buddy. But holiness, holiness does make demands on disciples but it's in the same way that there are demands on would-be musicians. If somebody decides, I want to be a good musician, what happens? They have to put in some time, some discipline, set some priorities. After somebody wants to be a good carpenter, they have to spend some time. They have to learn. They have to do the craft. If somebody wants to be a good engineer, they have to learn some things, put in some time, discipline themselves. So all of those things place some demands on us. Being holy before God, there are some demands placed on us. Certain things have to be forsaken. Other things have to be adopted into our lives. That's how it is. But in all of it, that's necessary if we're going to progress and flourish. And it's desirable and it's fulfilling. And it's beautiful. The Bible talks about, in the Old Testament, the beauty of holiness. Or it says, worship the Lord in holy array. It's like we've adorned ourselves in holiness to worship the Lord. There's something about that. God created us in his likeness to have relationship with him. He did that. He still wants that despite the defiling negative influence of sin in the human race. 
That's still God's desire. That sin, that defiling influence has separated us from knowing God freely, from interacting with him. He's holy, we're not. Sin has produced a barrier between us and God. And that sin barrier between us and God means spiritual death. It means fellowship with God has been broken. He's the source of life. We're not connected to it. So there's spiritual death now. And in due time, physical death. But God didn't leave it at that. God didn't just say, ah, well, we tried. We created them in our image. They made a bad choice and not too bad. No. He sent himself, his son, God, I said that wrong. He, he, he himself did something about it by sending his son to secure for us forgiveness for everyone who believes in Christ and turns from their life of sin. Now, how do we do that? We admit to him that we've sinned and rebelled against him and ask for forgiveness for our sins personally. In addition to that, we invite Jesus to take his rightful place as ruler of, ruler of our hearts. We, do, we haven't just fallen away from God because we've done a bunch of sinful things. We've committed sins. But also, in our hearts, the center of our world, until we come to Christ, is us. We have us on the throne. So we also have to say, God who created us is the rightful ruler of my life. And so I'm going to put that right as well. Not just forgiveness for my sins, but I need a nature change. I need God to take the throne of my life as the rightful ruler to lead me and enable me to change and follow him, to know him and become more and more like him. Now, for some of us, you might be in here tonight and think, I need to do something about that. Because maybe you've never done it. Maybe you've never yielded yourself to him. Now initially, you might, to, to do something about it, you might initially pray something like this. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy of your acceptance because of the things I've done and my rebellious heart against you. I'm guilty of sin and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me on the cross so that I can be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead as well to give me new life. I believe that. And I put my faith in Jesus for forgiveness and new life, the eternal life that God promises. Now, if that resonates with you, we'll pray that in just a moment as a response to God's offer of salvation and life. But perhaps, if that's not the first time for you, you recognize, hey, I, I prayed that before. I've lived part of my life uh, as a follower of God. But I need to recommit my life to him because I feel like I've strayed. I feel like I've kind of pushed Jesus off the throne of my heart and I'm really living with me in the, with me on the throne. And abundant life, which is his desire for 
you is a little bit out of reach because we're trying to get it by our own merits, but we need Christ. And without him as Lord of our lives, it'll never be, we'll never live the fulfilling God-centered life that he intends. So tonight, we're going to pray. And I'd like to ask that everyone just in humility to God, we're just going to bow our heads. You can close your eyes if you like. You don't have to. There's nothing magical about that. Sometimes it helps to shut out distraction. But we're going to pray that prayer. And maybe you're praying it as a recommitment. And maybe you're praying it for the first time. I hope so. If God's knocking on the door of your heart tonight, I pray you'll respond to him in faith and be saved. Because he wants that for you. I want that for you. Everybody say, Dear God, I know I'm not worthy of your acceptance because I've done things and my rebellious heart toward you has been cold. I am guilty of sin and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I can be forgiven. I accept. Thank you that he also rose from the dead to give me new life, eternal life, with you forever. I believe tonight. I put my faith in Jesus for forgiveness and new life. The life you promised to those who believe. From today forward, I choose to follow you, Lord. Thank you, Father God. I thank you for those in this room that prayed that for the first time, God. And pray even now that you would seal them, you would envelop them in your presence. For those who've been walking with you but have been convicted that they've strayed, I thank you for bringing us back in Jesus' wonderful, great name. For every person in here, God, for any who feel they couldn't pray that prayer right now, I pray you would continue to show yourself you would faithfully do it. Thank you, Lord. Do bless each person in this room tonight and those who are part of this church who aren't with us tonight. God, we ask for your blessing. And pray even now for the remainder, for this week that's about to begin. Father God, we thank you for the new month, for this week that's about to begin. Have your way in our lives in Jesus' great name. Amen.